Well, I like to play games. I especially like to play strategy games. Um, and my, my personal, and I, th- I think the best strategy game out there, is the game, of course, of chess. Chess is the ultimate strategy game. Um, how, many, how many people here uh, like to play chess? Hey, so, so several people who like to play chess. Um, it's not a real popular game anymore because now we have all these uh, awesome, you know, 3D games on our phones and tablets that we play instead. But, uh, you know, I think um, chess is a really great game. Well, if you are at all into chess, you are probably familiar with the name Bobby Fischer. Um, Bobby Fischer isn't a household name anymore, but back about 40 years ago, he was a household name because he was the youngest person at the time to receive the title of Grand Master. He received that title at 15 years old, and uh, he shortly thereafter dropped out of school and began to pursue a career in chess at the age of 16. And he actually did achieve the goal, his goal of, of being the world chess champion um, before he reached the age of 30. Not only was he world champion, um, but he was the first American world chess champion. So all these things made Bobby Fischer a very popular person at the time. Um, if you played chess at all, um, you actually knew that it wasn't just the fact that he had the world chess champion title. It wasn't these, these things that made him popular. Part of what made him popular in the chess world was the way he played chess. You know, in, in, in higher level games, a lot of times they, they kind of already know what moves the person's going to make, and the games would be somewhat boring. But Bobby's, Bobby Fischer's playing style was very different. He would find these crazy moves, and they would work. And uh, it was just very, it was fun to watch him play. Shortly after he became the world uh, champion, there was this disagreement about the rules about the next world championship match, and uh, Fisher felt like the rules were set up so that someone who was challenging him might be able to beat him kind of more out of chance rather than chess skill, and, uh, and he said, you know, you guys got to change the rules to this, and when they wouldn't change the rules, he just said, all right, well, I give up my title, and that was the end of that. He was a big-name celebrity at the time. And he was offered millions of dollars in uh, sponsorships. But instead of playing chess, he went into hiding. Bobby Fischer, who was the undisputed world champion player and was thought by some to be the best chess player who had ever lived, did not play a public game of chess for 20 years. He resurfaced briefly, but then he went back into hiding until he died. Part of the problem was that Fischer was in trouble with the U.S. government. He had uh, gone over to Yugoslavia um, to play chess at a time when Yugoslavia was under trade restrictions, so it was against, interna- well, against U.S. law, and uh, he got in big trouble for that. Um, but there are also lots of reports of mean comments that he would have made to people, um, just arrogant and mean things that he was saying. And so from what we can tell, Fischer's life was just a gradual decline, a sad gradual decline until the end. The reason I share all this is because I want you to imagine what it must be like to be in trouble with the government, for your life to be gradually declining off of a platform of success, for the the media to misrepresent your life. I want you to imagine what it must be like to go into hiding. The reason I want you to imagine this is because from all appearances, this is what seemed to be happening to Jesus in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. 
Yes, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus went into hiding. It was quite different from what it looked like with Bobby Fisher, but yes, Jesus went into hiding. Um, In case you would like to follow along and have a Bible with you, um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12. We'll have the verses on the screen as well, but John chapter 12 is where we're going to be at. You see, Jesus ran a very public ministry. He traveled from town to town to preach publicly. He was accessible to the crowds. It seemed, from the way he carried on his ministry, um, that pretty much anybody could come to Jesus. But in John chapter 10, Jesus had this showdown with the Jewish authorities, where he claimed very plainly to be God's son, and that was against Jewish law. And from that point on, they were intent on arresting him. The scriptures say that at that point, Jesus went way back across the Jordan to where he had started out with John the Baptist, and he began, he, he, he ministered over there. Eventually, the Jewish leaders had an official meeting about Jesus, and they decided that not only did he need to be arrested, but Jesus needed to be killed. He was that much of a problem. So they issued a public order that that anyone who knew where Jesus was, if you knew where Jesus was, you had to tell the authorities so that they could arrest him. So all this is happening. In response to this, take a look at what Jesus does. Chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many um, went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover, and they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he going to come to the festival at all? So Jesus is staying in this remote village called Ephraim, and people don't even know where, they, where he is or where to find him. And then take a look at chapter 12, verse 36. After he says the things we're going to be looking at today, he goes back into hiding. It says, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus, who had run a very public ministry, was now being, was now being intimidated by the Jewish authorities. And he had gone into hiding. What must it be like to go into hiding? The numbers of people following Jesus uh, at this point would have been much less. Indeed, John tells us in chapter 6 that many people stopped following him because his teaching turned um, a little bit more difficult to live out, and it became more uh, more difficult to understand. His followers would have begun to have internal doubts about his abilities as a leader, about whether he was really the Messiah. And then in light of Jesus' frequent mentionings of his upcoming arrest and death, maybe they were concerned that Jesus was becoming depressed and starting to give up. Doubts and fears would have certainly begun to surface in the hearts and minds of his disciples. You can almost hear them saying, I'm concerned about Jesus. He keeps talking about being killed by the Jewish leaders. Do you think he's okay? What if Jesus doesn't turn out to be the great leader that we thought he was going to be? And the days of hiding would have dragged on. Gone were the days of feeding masses of thousands of people. Gone were the all-day healing services with miracle after miracle. Gone were the days of preaching from the boat because there was no room to stand on the shore. From all outward impressions, Jesus' traveling ministry had fallen on hard times. 
Granted, he still had this core of 12 disciples and this handful of women and these other committed folks who were still a part of what he was doing. But you have to imagine that Jesus experienced a pretty strong dose of discouragement. You can almost hear his discouragement about what he has accomplished when he's talking to Philip in the next couple of chapters. He says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone, wait, let's see, yeah, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Those sound like the words of someone who is disappointed with how much his disciples have learned. And then there were the outward pressures. Some likely called him a coward for being in hiding. Rumors of soldiers searching for him would have been common. And there was always the, always the concern of who, who can you trust? All it would take was one word to the authorities, and then Jesus would be arrested and, uh, and killed. Jesus was going through a difficult time. But even more so, his disciples were struggling They were concerned about him and also likely pretty discouraged. In the passage we look at today, Jesus speaks to his disciples and to a crowd at large about how he is processing this difficult time and how they should as well. And as we go through what he says this morning, I want to extend an invitation to you if you are going through a difficult time to listen up. Because this is a dark moment for Jesus on a timeline, it's not that far from Gethsemane, where he prays, where he tells his disciples, you know, hey guys, can you stay up and pray with me? My soul is burdened to the point of death. Jesus knows what it is like to go through a difficult time. And here in the Gospel of John, we get an inside look at how he deals with it personally and how he deals with it publicly. So if you are going through a difficult time today, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to hear what Jesus has to say and hear how he continues to follow God in the midst of his difficulty. The first thing he says to us is that we need to realize that death can be a means to fruitfulness. Death can be a means to fruitfulness. Take a look at verse 24. Very truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, for us, death is a bad thing. It is, it is totally evil. But God is able to take things that are evil and bad and broken and turn them into something good. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that death can be a means to fruitfulness. And it is important, it is important that they get this because Jesus is anticipating his own death, and they will have to watch it, and they will have to deal with it. When we realize that death can be a means to fruitfulness, extreme difficulty can actually hold out hope for us. It's counterintuitive, but it can hold out hope for us because of our belief that God can take the dead and broken things and bring them to life. And this is what will happen to those who have committed their lives to Christ. 
One day we will die, but then as the scriptures say, we will be resurrected. We will pass from this life through death into a new and better life. That's what the Bible says. When Jesus says that death can be a means to fruitfulness, he is certainly talking about human life, especially about his own life, because that's what's about to happen. But he is, I think he's also applying this to the death of other things as well. There are things in our lives that need to die in order for us to be fruitful or more fruitful. One of those things is plans, goals, and expectations. They sometimes need to die. You thought you had the right plan. Your plan was backed by good counsel. And now as you've, as, as you've invested and, and watched how things have panned out, you've been, you've been pretty well disappointed. Sometimes it's just a bump in the road and you have to get through it. You have to get over it. But sometimes you need to let your plans and your expectations go. I'm reading this book by Andy, Andy Stanley right now. And in it he says, you should not confuse your plans, your plans with God's vision. He says that if you feel that you have a vision from God about where you're heading in life and things don't go so well, don't abandon the vision just because your plans failed. Keep the vision, develop new plans. Sometimes our plans or our expectations need to die. Traditions are another, th- another thing that sometimes need to die. Your family has already always been a part of this event, or you've always celebrated this holiday in a certain way. The tradition can even be something you've been handed down from generation to generation. It's a family tradition. But sometimes traditions can be broken and fallen, just like our world is broken and fallen. Sometimes new times call for new traditions. Sometimes bad traditions or traditions that do not work for a certain time need to die. Sometimes possessions need to die, or we need to let possessions die. I once had a friend in Chicago who had made a lot of money one year, and he went out and he bought a boat. Uh, Chicago is uh, situated right off of Lake Michigan. You know, it's right along Lake Michigan. It's got this beautiful, uh, beautiful scenery, you know, of of the lake, and it's right there. And in summertime, um, people just love to go and take a boat out onto Lake Michigan, and you get to view the skyline from the lake. And it's just really a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this friend of mine had bought a boat, and it wasn't too much money. He was able to actually buy it outright with the extra money he had made that year. And uh, a few, few years had passed, and he realized that um, owning a boat in Chicago was a very expensive endeavor. There were licenses, there were fees. You had to learn to drive a boat. You, uh, you had to store the boat somewhere during the winter. You had to, uh, pay, to pay rent to park your boat during the summer. Um, there was maintenance, there was cleaning, and when you, when you took your lady friends out on the boat, they wanted to eat and drink expensive things. He found out that owning a boat was way more expensive than buying a boat. Eventually, he realized that even though he loved his boat, and he loved the lady friends that came along with the boat, he needed to let the boat go. And so he did. Possessions can be like that. Sometimes you need to let them go, and it can be a good thing. Sometimes you need to let a reputation die. Maybe you were always the funny guy 
in class or at work. But now you're realizing that the type of jokes you're making and the type of jokes that people are expecting you to make are uh, not so pleasing to God. It's time to let that persona die. It's tough, right? Because this is your identity. But when you let it die, you can let your identity be consumed with the things of Christ, and there will be a new life laid out for you, a new identity and a new reputation. Then there will be fruitfulness in your life. Do not hold on to the things of this life or of this world. As, in John, as John says in John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, he says, Do not love the things of this world nor the things it offers you. This world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Don't hold on to this life. It's just a shadow of that which is truly life. Whoever holds on to this life will lose it. But whoever releases their grip from the things of this life will find true life. When you are going through difficulty, you need to realize that death can be a means to fruitfulness. And then you can have a perspective that is filled with hope because of your belief in the resurrecting power of God. The second thing that Jesus says, and he's saying it with his example more than he's saying it with his words is that when you are going through a period of difficulty, you need to focus on following, not on fleeing. When you are going through a period of difficulty, you need to focus on following, not on fleeing. In the midst of his struggle, Jesus shares pretty vulnerably what is going on in his heart. Listen to what he says in verse 27. This is vulnerable. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. His heart is troubled. There's a part of him that is tempted to pray and ask his way out of this. But he knows that he's right where God wants him. And so there's no place for running away. When we are in difficulty, it is a natural temptation to want to run away from the problem. That is so natural. We want to run away from bad circumstances. But sometimes difficulty is right where God wants us. In the fires of difficulty, God is pruning us and developing character traits that cannot be developed any other way. One day while uh, Paul and Silas were traveling and preaching in Philippi, This mob became angry with them, and uh, they were stripped naked, and they were beaten, and they were thrown into the dungeon of a jail. Paul had cast out this demon out of a a young woman, and uh, her her connections with the demonic had made some people rich, and they were not happy about it, and they had uh, incited this mob to, to to get Paul and Silas. Paul had done nothing unlawful, nothing. By the laws of the land, he had done nothing unlawful. But their ministry venture was put to an immediate halt, and instead of preaching, he and Silas were being forced into a jail, and they were bruised, and they were broken. They probably had broken bones, and the jail was cold. It was miserable. The believers who knew Paul and Silas were probably lobbying as hard as they could with the authorities, saying, hey, this this is not fair. This is unlawful. And Paul and Silas were probably sitting in the jail thinking, all right, when I get in front of the judge, this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to say, right? 
Their broken bodies were probably aching with the pain, and they were probably a good bit afraid of what their other inmates in the jail were going to do to them. It was a dark moment, or it could have been. But instead of focusing on fleeing from their problems, Paul and Silas turned to God, and they focused on what he might have them to do right then and there. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And then they began to sing. And they sang in the midst of that dungeon cell. They poured out their hearts to God in a perfect acoustical environment. And it was so beautiful that the other inmates just sat there and stayed up with them late into the night and listened. It was the middle of the night, it was midnight, and there was an earthquake. And the doors of the prison were thrown open and the chains that were on their ankles were thrown off. And the prison guard woke up and saw these doors all open and he thought the prisoners had escaped and so he pulled out his sword and he was about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas could have seen this opportunity and said, finally, God has answered our prayers and let us out of this miserable place. But they were zoned in on following God and they couldn't help but see the opportunity for ministry. And so they said, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And the guard had listened to enough preaching while they were in that cell, and he knew what he needed, and he came to Christ that very night. What if Paul and Silas had only been focused on getting out of their miserable situation? They would never have had the opportunity to see that jailer come to Christ, and his whole family too. We can spend so much time trying to figure out how to get ourselves out of difficult situations, can't we? We can worry, we can think about it, we can try this, we can try that. The problem is, if you are so focused on getting out of the painful situation that you are in, you will miss opportunities that are available right where you're at. When you are in difficulty, focus on following, not on fleeing. The third thing that Jesus does in the midst of his difficulty is he trusts the vision that, is, that he knows is from God. He trusts the vision that he knows is from God. Let's take a look at what Jesus says in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of, the world, of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It is in this statement that Jesus reminds himself and he reminds his hearers of what he is here to do. You see, Jesus was the Messiah. He was sent to earth not to get a whole lot of attention and be praised by the people. He was on a mission to destroy the work of the prince of darkness. He was on a mission to die, and he was on a mission to draw the entire world to himself. This was Jesus' mission and vision. He had a very clear sense from the Father of what he was supposed to do. Difficulty can cause us to second-guess our purpose in life. We wonder, have I taken a wrong turn, or has the whole venture been a mistake? Jesus' disciples, no doubt, were wondering if Jesus' vision to be the Messiah, to be the king to rule over Israel, and ultimately, ultimately the world, was really realistic, given the fact that he didn't have that many followers, and now he was hiding and talking about death. It didn't seem very realistic. If you are in difficulty, don't throw away the vision of where you know God is taking you just because things aren't going so well. 
Don't throw away that vision of a happy marriage. Don't throw away that vision of kids who have been raised to love and trust God. Don't throw away that vision of a fruitful ministry of changed lives. Don't throw away that vision of your friend or your relative coming to Christ for the first time. Don't throw it away on a bad spell. Now, of course, we need to make sure what we're really holding on to is really from God. We don't want to be married to our own human, human plans. But if you know that what you envisioned is something that God would certainly or does certainly want in your life, you need to hold on to that. And you need to trust that God is going to see you through that. You need to trust that God will carry through the vision that he has planted in your heart. The biblical picture of a, of a change in your life or someone else, else's life, it's part of a larger vision of what God is doing in this world. It's for, if it's from God, you can trust him to see that through. Why? Because it's from God. Jesus knew that he would be the king, Messiah, that God had foretold. It hadn't happened yet, but Jesus was confident that it would happen because God said it would happen. And he says, the prince of this world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all men to myself. The fourth thing that Jesus tells us about difficulty is that we need to trust him even though we don't understand what is going on. We need to trust him even though we don't understand what in the world is going on. So Jesus isn't hiding, and these, these Greek people from the north, they're coming to worship the Jewish God, and they are coming to look for Jesus. And so they've, they've, they've heard, they're from far away. They've heard about G, the Jesus sensation, and they, they'd like to see him. Um, and so they go up to his disciples and say, hey, we want to see Jesus. They know of Jesus, but they haven't really heard him teach. And so when Jesus speaks in this passage, he is talking to a crowd of Greek persons from the north, who know, who know a lot less than uh, the Jewish people or even his disciples about the Messiah and all these things, these religious things. And then there's also a bunch of his faithful disciples who have stuck with him. That's the crowd he's talking to. And when he talks about being lift up, this is how the crowd responds. Listen to this. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, first off, Jesus would often refer to himself as the Son of Man. I mean, he'd been doing that for like four years straight. His disciples knew this. Anyone who had been with him at all knew this. But these Greek-speaking people who had come to visit Jesus were confused. Not only were they confused about the Son of Man terminology, they were confused about why Jesus would say that the Messiah would be lifted up from the earth. You know, that lifted up from the earth sounds like his di- he dies and his spirit goes to heaven. And, you know, the Messiah is supposed to live forever. Can you imagine being Jesus with this crowd? (laughs) He was probably thinking, how can I even start to explain (laughs) all these things that I've been talking about for four years to this bunch of people who have no idea? They have no clue about what I'm talking about. They have no starting point because this is the first time they've ever listened to me. I'm about to die. These Greeks don't understand what he's saying. The disciples barely understand what he is saying. Even his disciples have just general guesses, rough, rough ideas of what Jesus is talking about when he talks, teaches about himself. His disciples don't understand what's going on. They don't understand what the plan is. They are so far from having the knowledge that they need to understand that there just isn't enough time 
in Jesus' life for Jesus to, exp- to explain this. There's just a couple days before he's going to be crucified. What does Jesus say to this group? What does he say to a troubled, confused crowd, his unknowing disciples, completely uninformed crowd? Verse 35. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, because darkness, before darkness overtakes you, whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. And of course, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Walk in the light and believe in the light. What Jesus is doing here is he's asking them to trust him even though they don't know what's going on. There's not enough time to explain it all, and even if he had the time, they probably still wouldn't understand. What they needed to do was to walk the way he had taught them to walk and trust that, they, that he was leading them somewhere good. They may not be able to understand, but they can still choose to trust This is what his disciples are told to do, and I think into a measured level, this is what they're actually able to do. They are able to trust that Jesus is following a plan that has been ordained by God, and they're willing to just trust him and see where that leads them. And so with you, when you are in the midst of difficulty, let's face it, you have no idea what is going on. You have no idea. It feels that way. It feels like, I don't know what's going on. You don't know why you're here in this place of struggle. There's very little that you really know at all. But do you know the light? Do you know the one who is so good that light is the proper descriptor for him? Do you, you don't know what's next, but do you know the one who is leading you? You don't know how you will ever get out of this scenario or if you, if you will ever get out of this scenario until you get to heaven. But can you trust him? You don't know the plans he has for you. And the plans you can see, as far as you can see, well, frankly, you don't trust those plans, right? They don't look so hot. But can you trust him, Jesus? Because the measure of how well you deal with difficulty is not wrapped up in how successful you are in the difficulty or how successful you are after the difficulty is over. The measure of how well you deal with difficulty lies in your ability to follow him daily and not get distracted by all those things that you are afraid of. I just want to encourage you, if you don't know what is going on with the difficult time you are going through, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. You just need to be able to trust him. That is what he asks for. Listen to the voice of Jesus in difficulty. Listen to how he speaks. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, I just want you to glorify your name through my life. There was a voice from heaven, and it said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Let's stand.